Tonight on The Readout. It was a year of resilience, a year of care, a year of bravery, a year of pain, a year of hope, a year of endurance, a year of unity, the year of invincibility, the furious year of invincibility. Following a devastating year of Russia's war of aggression, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky vows to do everything to win this year. If Putin's goal was to devour Ukraine, he's clearly failed. And from the beginning, he's underestimated Ukraine and the West with severe consequences within Russia. And you might be following the Alex Murdoch murder trial. We're not going to get into all that testimony. Instead, I'm going to tell you about what this case tells us about generational power and privilege and the oligarchs living among us in America. And we begin tonight with the somber one-year anniversary of Russia's illegal and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. The war remains the biggest threat to peace and security in Europe since the end of the Cold War. The scale of human suffering is unimaginable for so many. According to the United Nations, nearly 18 million people are in dire need of humanitarian assistance, and 14 million people are displaced from their homes. The repercussions continue to reverberate on a global scale as well, from a refugee and food crisis to unprecedented sanctions and higher inflation. And then, of course, there's the human cost. According to the U.N. High Commissioner for Human Rights, at least 8,000 civilians are dead and 13,000 have been injured over the past 12 months. Yet Kyiv remains standing. A year into Putin's brutality, we must ask, how will this end? And what exactly can Russia hope to gain? Now, Putin gained territory, but then he lost it. According to the Institute of the Study of War, a Washington-based think tank, Russia controlled about 27% of Ukraine's landmass in the weeks after the invasion began a year ago. But in the second half of last year, a Ukrainian counteroffensive won back almost 29,000 square miles, including the key city of Kherson. That left Russia in control of about 18% of Ukraine's territory, 9% less than when they first invaded. If Russia's goal is to devour this country, it isn't happening. Quite the opposite, in fact. Ukraine is now poised to get far more resources, including a $2 billion military aid package from the U.S. to help bolster Kyiv's war effort. Another key question, can Ukraine win this war or is it a stalemate? What we do know is that Russia is not winning the war. One of Moscow's goals was to beat back NATO, but NATO is bigger now. This week, Sweden's foreign minister said Sweden and Finland are firmly on course to join NATO, which will increase its membership from 30 to 32 countries before the year is out. The new members will also add more than 800 miles of land border with Russia, more than doubling the defensive bloc's existing borders. So what does Vladimir Putin do now? Putin, whose fate is tethered to a senseless brutality that has also killed or wounded 200,000 of his own soldiers. If neither side makes significant gains in the coming months, the conflict could well be heading for a stalemate, which no one wants. Ukraine says it wants all its land back, including Crimea, which was illegally annexed by Russia in 2014. Do they have the momentum to make that happen? Because if not, well, how else does this end? Joining me now from Kiev is MSNBC chief correspondent Ali Belshi and Malcolm Nance, a former U.S. naval intelligence officer who spent months fighting the Russians in Ukraine. And Ali, I do want to start with you, my friend. Um, let, let's talk about this, because you had a chance actually to 
throw a question to uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, to President Zelensky today. Uh, talk about that and talk about this press conference that he did today. Yeah, I did. A, it was a two hour long press conference with uh, international journalists here in Kiev. And, and that question you just asked, we could be headed for a stalemate. Then what happens? Nobody wants that to happen. So there are two views on this. One is Russia gets booted out of Ukraine, leaves and including uh, leaving Crimea. That's going to be a, a heavy lift. The other is that Russia makes advances. And if a year from now we're still in this position where this war is still going on, the, the president of Poland had said he worries that Russia will attack another state. So I put that question to President Zelensky. Listen to this conversation. Last week, the president of Poland had said that if this war is still going on one year from today, there is a real danger that an empowered Russia will invade another state. Given how effectively you have uh, held back a Russian advance with NATO's help here in Ukraine, is it even conceivable that, that Russia could invade another state, particularly a NATO state? Unfortunately, yes. Unfortunately, I believe it's possible. And that might happen. Why? I can, I can give you an explanation. President Putin needs to demonstrate successes and victories. So there is not going to be a success uh, on the battlefield in Ukraine. And uh, he will not succeed with the massive revenge uh, in, in, in Ukraine. So he would need to demonstrate success. Uh, and that's the issue here, that, that what will, what, what's Vladimir Putin's off-ramp here? What's his exit strategy? He hasn't, he hasn't displayed one. I will say this, Joy, right now, it's two in the morning here. The anniversary of the, uh, the, the first anniversary of this war is officially over. And the week that many Ukrainians expected of missile barrages, rocket attacks, and a new, uh, a new Russian, uh, launch, a uh, new Russian offensive, has not yet materialized. I'm touching a lot of wood around here because we don't want to we don't want to talk about these things that haven't happened. But for whatever reason, Vladimir Putin didn't do what the world expected him to do this week. Uh, Malcolm, let me bring you in there because you were on the ground um, with Ukrainian forces. You've seen how how they fight, uh, how hard they're fighting for their country. What do you make of the fact that Putin did not launch the much expected offensive um, on the anniversary of the invasion? Well, I mean, he could have carried out a series of missile strikes on the cities, as he's been doing almost every day for the last year. But in terms of an offensive, which is actually a ground combat term moving out there, the Russians just don't have the combat capacity to do it. I've spent the last, oh, I was nine months in the Ukrainian army in the International Legion fighting the Russian. Uh, we knew that by September, when we carried out our counteroffensive in the Kharkiv area, and then carried out another one in Kherson, that Russian combat power, really offensive power, is finished. I don't think Russia will ever be able to carry out anything of any significance over the next year. It doesn't matter if they bring up 500,000 mobilized men. All they are doing is just putting them into our sights. And that is why they are not carrying out a strike today. Putin is losing all of his capacity with to use precision weapons. There was a rumor he was going to use his Air Force in a devil-may-care um, mass attack on Ukraine. The air defenses of Ukraine are so good right now that they're shooting down about 80 to 90 percent of the incoming, depending on the number of missiles that are coming in there. That's why we're not seeing anything today. 
Well, you know, Ali, you know, in talking about the situation here, Russia has really only succeeded in one thing, completely, completely isolating itself. I mean, there was a U.N. vote today uh, to, 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 to condemn Russia's invasion and to call for them to withdraw. The vote was 141 to 7. The only countries voting with Russia were Russia itself, Belarus, North Korea, Eritrea, Mali, Nicaragua and Syria. Uh, we do a whole <laughs> series of questions about that. 32 abstentions, including <laughs> China. But on this question of stalemate, it's not as if Russia doesn't have an historical memory they can draw on about what stalemates look like and how they can be endless. North Korea is yes. a perfect example. That, that war started in 1950. Their own experience in Afghanistan, which they fought to a stalemate and got nothing from it but a humiliating withdrawal. Chechnya, again, this never-ending sort of stalemate this and the grinding war in Syria. They, they have, you know, used their forces all over the region, all over the East, um, and they've not succeeded yet. Yes. And Afghanistan and Chechnya are both key examples because they went out for they went on for a long time. Uh, Afghanistan was at the fall of the so you know preceded the fall of the Soviet Union. So you know this was a, a a country that was broke and spending a lot of money. And all the news reports were about how their these guys in the hills were taking down their helicopters again with U.S. help. Those were uh, Stinger missiles being launched uh, that were provided by the United States, the Mujahideen. But the same thing happened in Chechnya. These these young Russian soldiers are coming home in body bags, and these parents are saying, "What exactly?" are we fighting for again? What is this? Why are we there? And that's sort of the issue here in Ukraine. There are a lot of Russians who didn't give two hoots about Ukraine. They certainly weren't interested in taking it over. But Russia, like America, is subject to cable TV and propaganda and, of course, rules about what you can and can't say. You still can't call this a war in Russia. You can go to jail for doing that for 15 years. So there's a lot of brainwashing going on. There are a lot of people who can't explain why their prices are up, why their oil isn't getting sold, why they can't go to a McDonald's anymore, um, why they can't trade with other countries and, and buy things with their credit cards. Um, and, and, and everybody is starting to know somebody whose son or, you know, came back uh, in a body bag. Uh, but we don't know what happens to that. What changes in, in Russia? Is there enough of a movement? It's very hard. The, there is an opposition movement. There is a dissent movement in Russia, but it's very hard to, to gain ground because all of the dissent leaders are in jail uh, and they're yeah. imprisoning anybody else who questions this war. But that's the, that's why the institutional memory is not kicking in, because Vladimir Putin is ruling with an iron fist right now. Yeah, including our uh, friend of the show, Vladimir Karamurza, who was more, more recently um, in, imprisoned as well. I mean, and Malcolm, the one thing that actually is clear. In fact, Vladimir you know, was, I, I, was on, on, the, on the show with me in April yep. of last year uh, on a Sunday. And I said, Vladimir, why'd you go back? I'm scared for you. And 24 hours later, he was arrested. He had just gone to Moscow and they put him in jail. Yeah. And he would when when we've asked him that question, right? And we he's a great and brilliant guy. And he says, I'm a Russian politician. I can only be that in Russia. Like, he's yep. very clear. Gotta he's a patriot. Russia. Exactly. And and Malcolm, what is clear and you are the the uh, the the war fighter with experience here. But isn't the advantage that Ukraine has fundamentally is their clarity of mission. This is their country. They're fighting to keep it. There's not a lot of clarity on on their opponent's side, but they're very clear. They want all their territory back and they would fight to the last grain of sand. So, you know, it seems like they have just a natural advantage because of that. Well, you know, one year ago, uh, eight days before the invasion, I, I was on MSNBC on a show and I was sort of going against the grain. People were saying, hey, Ukraine's going to fall. Russia's going to take Kevin 72 hours. And I had just come back from the Donetsk battlefront with the two commanders that are in charge of this war right now. And it was very clear to me one thing 
was at, was at hand here. It's not just clarity of mission. It's heart. The Ukrainians have heart. This is their country. This is their people. This is their land. And they are going to fight for it. They were ready for the Russians for two weeks before that war started. Their war stocks were already out there. But more importantly, they were going to fight to defend their land. And that's why I joined them, because this is a righteous fight. Russia invaded them blindly. There is no, you know, this is granted this war started early in 2014. But what's happening here is an order of magnitude different. What the Russians didn't understand was that they were going into the lion's den. These people were going to fight not to the last man. They were going to fight to protect their women, their children, their parents, their brothers, their sisters, and their neighbors. That kind of, of what, we, what we would say in the military, um, this force multiplied, made the Ukrainian army quite literally unbeatable. They would be fighting yeah. the Russians right now if we hadn't given them one bullet. But we've given them yeah. the resources to fight Russia. They are winning. Russia is going to lose this war. I feel like I'm hearing back, uh, Ali, what you have communicated to us and through you has been communicated to you by so many people that you've talked to in Ukraine, men, women and children. They're all very clear. Yeah. Children know what an F-16 is. They know what HIMARS are. They, they, every time there's an air raid siren, they go into a bunker and they, you know, depending on what class you're in, they know which bunker they're going into. They, there is remarkable clarity of mission. Every last person has said exactly what Malcolm just said. They're going to win this war. It's not a matter of if, uh, but when. Uh, and, and they'll, they'll stay in that fight. I mean, with all the atrocities, with the people who have died, the civilians who have died, they continue to say, oh, this is, there's just no other alternative. I asked a woman who I'd met while I was on your show um, in on a train platform in Hungary. I, I caught up with her. She's in Switzerland in a refugee shelter. And I asked her at the end of an interview, I said, um, you know, wh- how is, are, is is Ukraine going to win this war? And she paused before she answered. And she tilted her head like this. And Joy, I thought it was a language issue. I thought maybe she didn't understand the question. The truth is she yeah. didn't understand the question, but it wasn't a net language issue. She's like, what are you even asking me? Yes, of course, we're <laughs> going to win this war. Of course, I'm going to go home. I mean, there's a there's a Toussaint Louverture, uh, Toussaint Louverture kind of spirit there, right? I mean, when when people are determined to be yes. free, they are going to be free. Uh, Russia needs to learn that lesson if they haven't learned yes. it in five or six wars. Yep. Ali Belshi and Malcolm Nance, thank you both very much, my friends. Much appreciate both of you. Up next on the readout, a look at the extent to which the Russian people are paying the price for Putin's incredible miscalculation. The readout continues after this. The one-year mark of Russia's in Ukraine invasion is evidence of Russian President Vladimir Putin's lack of self-awareness. Clearly, he expected that his special military operation would be over in a matter of days, fulfilling his dreams of a new imperial Russia. Putin clearly underestimated Ukraine's resolve to fight back. He also clearly misjudged the resolve of the United States, Europe, and NATO to support Kyiv. For Ukraine, it's been a year of resiliency, but for Russia... Putin's dream of a second Soviet Union is more of a nightmare. Crippling economic sanctions have isolated Russia from the world economy, and restrictions on oil trade tightened the grip on one of its main revenue sources. Thousands of international corporations fled or reduced operations in Russia, so you can't get a Big Mac in Moscow, but you can get an imitation at the rebranded Uncle Vanya's. And then there's the human toll. At least 500,000 and perhaps nearly 1 million have left Russia in the year since the invasion began.
began. Not to mention Russia's military losses. Moscow says that Russian casualties are in the thousands, but Ukraine's military estimates that more than 145,000 Russian troops have been killed since the invasion. Not that the Russian dictator would ever acknowledge that he made a mistake, since he has always misjudged the West. And joining me now is Ann Applebaum, staff writer for The Atlantic. And Ann, I'm so glad uh, to get the chance to talk to you um, this evening because it seems to me that everything about what Vladimir Putin wanted and obsesses over, the destruction of NATO, weakening NATO, weakening the alliances of the Western nations, all of it, all of it has gone um, completely sideways. Um, and this war, he is, it, whatever's happening, it ain't a win. It's a classic case of a dictator coming to believe his own propaganda. He's been saying for years and years and years, the West is degenerate, the West is divided, uh, democracy doesn't work, democracy is dysfunctional. Um, and he came to believe his own language. And of course, once you've been in power that long, there's almost nobody around you to tell you something different. Uh, he also believed his own propaganda about Ukraine. I think he genuinely believed that the Ukrainian government wasn't real, that it was somehow a fake group of, of outsiders. They weren't, they weren't connected to the people. He didn't really understand Ukrainian democracy. He's got no one around him who knows and understands modern Ukraine. And so he absolutely made a mistake about what would happen when the invasion began. The Russian soldiers really thought that the Ukrainians would just somehow give up. Um, and he's been proven wrong over and over and over again. Um, and yet he's, um, he's, he's, he might be making that mistake again. Of course, it's up to us to determine it because his assumption now is still that eventually the West will stop supporting Ukraine. Eventually the Ukrainians will give up. And that's why he's still fighting despite the staggering losses that you've just described. You know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, there is no overt admission of failure, but there are actions that t are tantamount to admissions of failure. I mean, the use of the Wagner Group is such a sort of criminal enterprise um, to to supplement their their military troops, which they are losing in staggering numbers. This is the latest um, from about the Wagner Group. Um, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who's the head of this criminalist organization, has accused actually the Russian defense minister of trying to destroy the group, claiming his fighters have been deprived of ammunition, um, that they didn't get enough bullets, essentially. And so you now even have the kind of crimey, you know, violent groups like Wagner saying, no, they're not getting enough supplies either. Yes, the Wagner group, for those who don't know, is a kind of mercenary group that's pretended for a long time to be independent of the Russian army. And now, of course, we're learning that it's absolutely dependent, you know, on them for ammunition, yeah. which is you know, very important. Um, it's interesting. There are now clearly fights going on between different parts of the Russian security services and different parts of the Russian elite. Uh, Putin's speech a couple of days ago was very much directed at that group. And there were some threats there, you know, about, you know, traitors will not be dealt with mercifully and we will we will deal harshly with those who betray us. And that was, of course, directed at anybody who might happen to be thinking about revolting or rebelling or, or or questioning the party line. So we know that there is a good deal of discontent in Moscow, even if we can't hear it clearly or pinpoint it. You know, it, it one wonders whether there are enough people who can accidentally fall out of windows to keep him in there, to keep Putin in long term, as parents start to note that their children have not come home from the war. 
Yeah, this is the most extraordinary thing is the number of deaths. I mean, actually, I, I heard a Pentagon source tell me a few weeks ago that they reckon 200,000, including dead and wounded. So 200,000 people taken out of the fight, which is, you know, staggering number, far higher than Vietnam, far higher than Russians in Afghanistan, Soviet Union in Afghanistan um, some years ago. And sooner or later, that has to have some kind of echo in in, in Russian society. I mean, of course, because it's not a democracy, there's no mechanism by which popular discontent or, or, or anger or, or sadness translates into the public sphere. So it's not seen much in public. Um, but of yeah. course, you know, they, they will, you know, the regime will know how much is being said in private and will have a sense uh, of when discontent is rising. And as that happens, um, there may be people who, who at least begin to push the president in a different direction, you know, if not, as you say, out a window. It, but here, there's an interesting thing about Vladimir Putin. I mean, he still is an old Kremlin guy, and you can sort of almost see on his face his absolute contempt for the United States, which may even be more so than his contempt for NATO, and his desire to see the U.S. crumble the way that the USSR did, right? That we meet the same fate. So he's meddling in our elections. Um, he's trying to get Donald Trump, who is sort of a lackey, will play the lackey to him, to be our president. He takes action to do that. And you see his allies in the Republican Party, sadly, um, pushing a pro-Putin line that is about the same things. We should have secession. We should break up as a country. It's, this is a war against Russia. So you've got like the Fox News crowd, the Marjorie Greens echoing his talking points. And that seems to be the one thing that Putin has actually been kind of successful at, is stoking a kind of russified view of the world inside the United States. But does that end up helping him in some way in his larger project or not? And so that that was his project. I mean, of course, he didn't invent the far right in America, just like he didn't invent it anywhere else. Um, right. Those people are real. They come from our culture. You know, he just sought to enable them and give them louder voices and and, you know, help them with with in social media campaigns. And maybe in some can, you know, through complicated mechanisms, offer them financing. Um, but, you know, you know, and, and that is and you're absolutely correct in that. His vision is one of the United States splitting up, seceding, what, you know, whatever the adjective is. Um, you know, I do want to stress, though, that at this exact moment, the majority of the Republican Party, at least in Congress, still supports the effort in Ukraine. I was just in Munich where I heard several Republican congressmen even speaking in that, you know, kind of, you know, loud, encouraging, you know, I, we would do the same if we were attacked and so on. Um, and I want to make it clear that there's still bipartisan support. It's still um, the majority of Americans, including Republicans, support the American war effort there. Um, I, let's not give Marjorie Taylor Greene too big a voice or too loud an yeah. impact on our politics. Um, you know, there is a there is a pro-Russian piece of uh, you know in the American political scene, but um, you know, let's let's not let's not listen to them. I think that's an excellent point. They are still the minority, even in their own party, a loud, obnoxious minority, but a minority nonetheless. And Applebaum, thank you very much. Much appreciated. And still ahead, the murder trial of Alex Murdaugh isn't just about a lurid double homicide. It's a window into the pervasive reach of generational power and privilege in America. I will explain after this. So if you will indulge me for just a moment, I'd like to take you to the low country of South Carolina. 
For centuries, Charleston was the largest point of disembarkation for the transatlantic slave trade. Charleston and the Low Country built its economy, labor, and social hierarchy on that trade. The crops cultivated by enslaved labor made the Low Country plantation owners some of the richest and most powerful individuals in North America. It is in this place that the Murdoch family grew its roots, roots that go back to the late 1800s. You might know the Murdochs because they are the subject of two wildly popular documentaries, one on HBO and one on Netflix. And right now, the current family patriarch, Alex Murdoch, is standing trial for the murder of his wife, Maggie, and his son, Paul. You probably can't get away from the coverage of this trial, even though we live in a country where mass murders that happen almost weekly get barely the same undivided attention, not to mention all the other murder cases in the U.S., which is the most violent, non-war-torn country in the world. The infatuation with this trial stems from a lot of things, our news culture and the bizarre made-for-TV facts of the story itself. The patriarchs of this well-heeled Southern family, according to the Greenville News, maintained reputations as sensational and stubborn prosecutors who often played by their own rules, and they executed law and order with a certain down-home Southern style. Their connections and power have afforded them luxuries and privileges that most people can only imagine. And wherever they would go, Death seemed to follow, and accountability appeared elusive. That's because a Murdoch has had unbroken control over the solicitor's office for 86 years. Now, the solicitor is essentially the top prosecutor over five counties, a tenure considered the longest of its kind in the history of the United States. And joining me now is James Lasden, who recently wrote about the Murdochs in The New Yorker. And I will credit you, sir, with getting me to finally pay attention to this trial, because I've had no interest in this trial at all. I mean, there there are literally mass murders every week in this country. And so I'm like, this one murder, I'm not going to focus too much on it, as tragic as it is. But talk about this family. They have connections to to the surrender of Robert E. Lee. I mean, it's got everything. Well, they they've. They do. The story does have everything. Uh, And it's quite a confusing story with many, many pieces. And the family itself, as you say, they've controlled the legal business of this 14th Circuit, which is a very, the part where they live is a very isolated, uh, quiet place on the face of it. And they've had the run of it. They, they they ran it as solicitors, and they also ran the major, the main um, litigating company, uh, which became PMPED, which is the family farm. So they've basically had a lock on both sides of of the law in that area for three generations. And uh, Alec Murdoch is the first who did not become a solicitor, but he worked in. He had a volunteer's badge, as they call it, in the solicitor's office. He inherited and he continued uh, to exploit the very close associations that the family had with law enforcement in that in that area. Uh, and it, it, the advantages to him and to the family are, I mean, there, there, there were sort of monetary advantages. They, they made a lot of money out of this. But they were also able to protect themselves when they got into scrapes, and that's fairly well documented over the years of bean scrapes, but nothing compared to the kind of scrapes that Alec. Right now. But I mean, but, 
But if you think about it, I mean, first of all, when you say family farm, we're talking about like a 1,200 acre pieces of property. that they, I mean, they own thousands of acres. But, you know, this, the scrape now involves the killing of the wife, Margaret, Maggie, but also the son who himself was just about to go to trial um, for his role in the death of one of his friends in a boating accident in which it appears that Alex Murdoch, the guy on trial now, tried to kind of clean it up. Um, because the son was drunk driving in a boat. And so he was about to go to trial for that. There was another death of a young man who was somehow connected to the family and another death of somebody who cleaned for the family and a settlement that somehow disappeared, millions of dollars that vanished. It seems that they were involved in more deaths than your average family. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. You could certainly say that. Uh, and I mean, yes, there's a there's a five there are five bodies to account for. And the very tragic death of Mallory Beach in the boating accident was the first that really came to, to light. And in a way, that was what uh, caused this sort of story to, op- to be opened up. I mean, Alex, it turns out, had been stealing from his clients for years before that. He, w- he, he was in, in um, sort of personal injury law, and he was just winning large settlements for people like, in one instance, his, his housekeeper. Um, who died after falling down the stairs of his house. And then he he had perfected a method of stealing these settlements or uh, stealing large parts of them, or in some cases, the entire settlement. And these were hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars. So, yes, there are bodies to account for, and, and there, there are large sums of money. And nobody quite has gotten to the bottom of it, of it all, but, but I think generally we understand more than we did a, a, few, a few months ago. Um, it's, but, it's, what's yeah. interesting too, too is these are people this is a family that has probably caused the incarceration and execution of we don't know how many people right they have been in charge of the law um, the grandfather apparently had like a 95% conviction record 14 executions none of which he attended I mean the, the, this is a family that has been the law the sense of impunity feels otherworldly except that it isn't that uncommon I mean, I feel like there is a sort of oligarchy in this country that sort of exists beneath the surface um, in this, you know, small D democracy. And they seem like a, a, a sort of top tier member of it. I think they certainly are. And I think that there are some conditions in South Carolina that that sort of enable that and make it perhaps worse than it is in some other places. Um, I don't know that South Carolina is inherently any more corrupt than other places, but it has some some peculiarities. Uh, for instance, in Hampton County, in the Fourth Circuit, where well, in South Carolina, in general, there was um, a provision in the law that you could, if you wanted to bring a lawsuit against, let's say, a railroad company uh, for an injury, you could bring that lawsuit in any county of your choice, regardless of where the injury occurred, as long as the injury occurred somewhere in South Carolina, and some, and as long as the railroad company own property in the county that you chose to bring your suit in. So the Murdoch family exploited this to great advantage and it became one of the sort of bases of their fortune. They they made Hampton into a kind of litigator's paradise uh, where they would routinely obtain very large settlements for plaintiffs. Uh, And they had a very um, accommodating jury (laughs) pool that would regularly award Settlements that were vastly higher in, in many cases than you would get anywhere else in the country. 
And wow. that provision was and, rescinded in 2006, but by then they, they'd made a lot of money. And yet Alice Murdoch still stole. It just, you know, it blows your mind. Uh, James Lasden, it's an excellent piece. I hope people will read it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you being here this evening. And who in the week is still ahead, y'all? But first, Democratic attorneys general in a dozen states are now pushing back against the right's relentless assault on reproductive rights, now targeting abortion medication. More on that next. This is not just an attack on women's fundamental freedoms. Um, It is an attack on the very foundation of our public health system. Those who would attack this process and the ability of the FDA to make these decisions ought to look in their own medicine cabinets to figure out where they're prepared to say that those medications that they need to alleviate suffering and to prolong the quality of life should no longer be available to them. Vice President Kamala Harris speaking this morning ahead of a major decision expected any moment now out of Texas, where one Trump-appointed judge will rule on whether to ban the abortion pill, Mifepristone, nationwide, meaning in every state, no matter red or blue, and upending the lives of millions of women. To perhaps no one's surprise, the Republicans who so fervently claimed that their opposition to Roe was purely because they thought abortion should be a state issue are nowhere to be found. Because this has always been their goal. It's been their goal all along. They want a national abortion ban. And this ruling could bring them one giant step closer to getting it. As Mifepristone accounts for more than half of all abortions in the country. It also comes as state lawmakers are actively working to create laws that would criminally punish anyone who gets an abortion. In just the past two weeks, Republican state representatives in Kentucky and Alabama introduced legislation that would classify abortion as homicide and allow people seeking abortions to be charged with murder. While a similar bill just introduced in the South Carolina State House would also put the death penalty on the table as punishment. Joining me now is Aaron Haynes, editor-at-large of The 19th, and Liz Winstead, co-creator of The Daily Show and founder of Abortion Access Front. And Liz, I do want to start with you on that. This lie that um, Republicans uh, who were against abortion only wanted the states to be the little laboratories of democracy. Well, that's a lie because one of their fellow ideal uh, ideologues is now potentially poised to ban to get the abortion pill banned for the whole country. What will that mean for women? Uh, well, it can mean many things because, I mean, it's sort of like it's bad and it's worse. There's no way that I believe that this judge is ever going to just say, oh, this is this is a frivolous case. Uh, it either means that the access to the care goes back only to be administered by clinics. And we all know that that clinics just don't really exist anymore, making those barriers to access this care terrible. Or he can just say, you know what, the FDA frivolously 23 years ago and after, you know, approving a drug that's safer than Tylenol, uh, we have to yank it off the shelves, uh, could mean literally zero access for the most common medication abortion in the country. And that is terrifying to a lot of people, especially low-income folks, rural folks, people of color, like that's who it affects the most. 
Right. And Aaron, I mean, if it if this case were to then be appealed up to the Supreme Court, I think we can all guess how that would go, because you have Sam Alito and five other justices who are ideologues on this issue, too, as well. Um, it, it was good for me to see the vice president of the United States being the, the spokesperson for this issue in the administration. That is a smart way to use her as she was a former prosecutor, because they're also talking about putting women in prison and maybe getting giving people the death penalty for doing abortions in states. Right, Joy. And I think this is why you again see her taking the lead if she has been for the administration on this issue because of her her many identities, uh, you know, as a black woman, black women leading on the conversation around reproductive rights, also as a prosecutor, uh, you know, as this heads into the legal realm. And we continue to see the real life implications of a post-Dobbs reality that are happening in real time. I think you saw the vice president speaking today uh, with a sense of urgency, because even as we sit here, you know, a ruling could come even even as we are sitting here uh, out of Texas. And this is, uh, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the most effective, one of the most common ways uh, of terminating a pregnancy for, for uh, many, many uh, people who need to do that. And so uh, as as the reality for, for too many people on the ground remains just kind of un- uncertain and shifting. Uh, on an hourly, you know, moment to moment basis, uh, especially at the state level, uh, I, I think uh, this case uh, and, and this particular issue really brings that into focus. You know, and, and it's and interesting, think, Liz, there's all. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say in the diabolical nature of how this case came to be, this alliance that brought the case forward was formed three months ago, purposefully in the district of this judge because they knew that this judge would rule in their favor. And they knew that even that if it's challenged, it's going to the Fifth Circuit, the scariest court. And if you ever wondered, gee, who would ever marry Josh Hawley? Well, the lead attorney in the case is actually the person who is the lead attorney bringing this case forward. So grossness all around, Joy. Yeah. I mean, and the thing is, this this is playing out in states already simultaneously. So in Wisconsin, you have this uh, state Supreme Court race, Aaron, that is critical to uh, believe to be critical to the continued existence of abortion rights in that state. You have states like Georgia that already have draconian abortion bans where there really hasn't been much of an electoral pushback. People have not paid the price for doing it. It, the, The state thing is not playing out in a clean way. No, it's not. And and you mentioned that Wisconsin Supreme Court race. I mean, that is probably one of the most closely watched races in the country this year because of the potential implications. Uh, you know, you just had um, the uh, ca- candidates for that race narrowed down just uh, just this week. Uh, you have a liberal judge, Janet Rotasowicz, and, and a conservative, conservative former judge, uh, Dan Kelly, that are facing off uh, in this race uh, in April. And uh, the stakes of this are going to determine the balance of the court in Wisconsin. It's already controlled four to three by conservatives. And the court is going to take up cases not only on abortion, but other influential issues like uh, the state's political map or, or possible election disputes. So, uh, you know, there are many issues uh, that are happening at the state level that really feel kind of consequential and existential, particularly in the absence of, of federal legislation that is kind of, uh, you know, making the law of of the land uh, as opposed to law on a case by case and state by state basis. And, and, you know, in case you're thinking, well, this is all about, you know, the the rights, compassion for children. I I have to play this. This is not an abortion related thing. This is his name is David Eastman. He's a representative. Um, This is what he had to say about abused children uh, who die as their result of their abuse. In the case where child abuse is fatal, 
it, obviously it's not good for the child, but it's actually a benefit to society because there aren't needed for government services and whatnot over the whole course of that child's life. Through the chair, can you say that again, to say a benefit for society? Um, talking dollars. <laughs> he, he was censured, uh, Liz, yesterday, but he had been previously censured in 2017 uh, over comments he made suggesting that there are women in Alaska who try to get pregnant in order to get a free trip to the city to get an abortion. Your thoughts? I mean, don't we know that's how it always works? You know, those frequent flyer abortion miles that people are getting. Um, but it's 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 so horrific. But also every time you see a chest thumping pro-life person, you know, then just dig a little deeper and you will find horrible things about how they absolutely don't want to care for any child who is currently living on this planet. Yeah, Aaron and Liz are staying with us uh, because we're going to have a turn. We're going to call it a turn. We're going to play our favorite game, Who Won the Week, after the break, so don't go anywhere. We're turning this thing around. <laughs> well, we made it to Friday. Thank you, Jesus, which means it is time to play our favorite game. Aha, waiting for the music, and here it is. Who won the week? Back with me, Aaron Haynes and Liz Winstead. Aaron Haynes, who won the week? Joy, I'm going to say survivors. Uh, you had Harvey Weinstein and R. Kelly being sentenced on the same day to almost 40 years combined for sex crimes. Uh, seems like justice for those survivors. I know it doesn't change what happens, but for many of them, it, this does represent uh, part of closure. Amen, amen, and amen. That is an excellent answer. Liz Winstead, what you got? Who won the week? Uh, who won the week? I have a runner-up, which is my team at AAF, who are down there in South Carolina fighting off bad guys at the last remaining independent clinic in South Carolina. But I got to say, the president getting on a 10-hour train ride and going into <laughs> an active war zone to give support to, you know, Ukraine, that is like yep. chef's kiss presidential. I need somebody to make a show called That's So Biden, and half the episodes take place on trains, and he just does Biden-y things. That's a very Biden-y thing. Yes. So my, uh, I kind of have a mishmash of what you guys were talking about. Uh, my uh, Who Won the Week is in tribute to Sally Hemings. Uh, you know, a few years ago, they discovered the windowless cell where Sally Hemings was kept as a essentially sex slave, uh, enslaved by uh, Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers, which he could you could access directly from his bedroom. It was a windowless cell where she had all of her children. Well, you know what? Black women are winning it back in Virginia in payment uh, for Sally Hemings, the newly elected Congresswoman Jennifer McClellan. She is the first black woman to ever represent the state in Congress. There she is. And what were her issues? Voting rights, environmental protection, and abortion access. Because boom, black women getting it back for the ancestors. Thank you, Aaron Haynes and Liz Winstead. That is tonight's readout.